the message, you are dismissed to Kid Zone. We're going to be in John 18 today. John 18, if you have your Bibles with you. God's love is life-giving. This is important because a lot of us go through life, I think, kind of like, like this. Kind of like, oh, i got to go back to work tomorrow. Or, oh, more homework. Uh, more grocery shopping. More laundry. More chores. The kids want to eat again for the love now I have to do dishes again for the love. We kind of go through life just kind, of, just kind of weary and burdened. And, and life just has a way of sucking the life out of us. Here's my goal for this morning. My goal for this morning is that this will be incredibly life-giving. That you'll walk out of here taller, standing up straighter, and stronger. Because you have a fresh encounter with the love of God. Then, once you do that, that you will be able to be a life-giving person. I'm convinced that you can't be a life-giving person unless you are a life-receiving person. So my invitation at the end is that you would receive the Christ life. That you would receive afresh the love of God. But see, for some of us, and I think some of us that think of ourselves as Christians, some of us that have decided to follow Jesus, we kind of have this idea that that church is maybe one more thing on our list of things to do. So, as I mentioned earlier, got to go to school, got to do your homework, got to go to practice, got to go to work, got to do the laundry, got to do the dishes, got to clean up, got to this, got to that, got to the other, and got to go to church, and it sounds like one more life-sucking thing. And I know if, if you haven't decided to follow Jesus, that probably is what it sounds like. I don't know if I need one more thing to feel guilty about not doing. You know, I don't know if I need one more thing to feel uh, pressure about. I don't know if I need one more thing to um, try to to live up to. One more life-sucking person in my life. You wouldn't say that maybe to those of us that follow Jesus, but maybe that's what Jesus sounds like to you. I want to talk to you this this morning about how Jesus is life-giving. But to do that, we have to look at what Jesus came to do, and why he came to do it. So here we are in John chapter 18, verse 1, what Jesus came to do and why he came to do it. In fact, if you're, I mean, maybe you can think of this this way. If, if you are going to explain how this is life-giving to someone, those of you that already know the story that we're going to read, how would you explain how this is life-giving to someone? Those of you that don't know the story, maybe you could be asking, like, try to figure out what I'm going to tell you by the end of it. 
Here we go. John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, while well, he's just prayed for the unity of his disciples. He's just finished the upper room discourse that he began in chapter 13. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. Okay, can I, can I orient you geographically here? So this picture is taken from the top of the Mount of Olives. And, the, I mean, you probably know, any of you that are familiar just by watching the news, what we're looking across. You know, so you're on the Mount of Olives. What are you looking at? Jerusalem. And so you're looking over there at Jerusalem, and you're looking across the Kidron Valley. But I got ahead of myself. Um, down the Mount of Olives, as you go down the Mount of Olives, you kind of walk back and forth because it's really steep. Uh, kind of doing switchbacks. And the Garden of Gethsemane is on the side of the Mount of Olives looking across the Kidron Valley at Jerusalem. So you come down out of Jerusalem um, into the Kidron Valley and then back up out uh, onto the Mount of Olives. So they come out into the valley into, by the brook Kidron, the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden. Now, which garden is that? Gethsemane. Now John will again and again give us details that the other Gospels don't. Like there's a dude that loses an ear that gets it put back. And John tells us his name. Mark doesn't. Why would John not tell us the name of the garden? I'll tell you why. I think in a little bit. Where there was a garden which he and his disciples disciples entered, like it's a walled garden, maybe, because they enter it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. The point is, Jesus knew that, G that Judas would know, and he went there anyway. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now there's a full moon because it's Passover. It's probably clear because it's cold. And yet they bring torches and lanterns and weapons because they're expecting to have to look for him for quite some time. Like everyone else, they're expecting him to try to run away. And they're expecting to have to look all over the Mount of Olives, the side of the hill, for this peasant rabbi. Then Jesus. So here they are. You know, Jesus, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember I showed you looking across the Kidron Valley at Jerusalem. He sees these torches and lanterns come out of the city, down into the Kidron Valley, and up onto the Mount of Olives. Jesus sees them coming. Jesus could have run away. He could have hid. He could have done something else. But watch what happens. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. Man, let that sink in. Those of you that know the story. Those of you that know what's coming next. Knowing all that would happen to him came forward. And said to them, whom do you seek? Watch how many times Jesus asks this. 
Who do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. You want to know what the Greek looks like for that? Here's what the Greek looks like. You probably don't, but I'm going to show you anyway. Because it's important later on. Jesus says to them, I am. And this is what the Greek looks like. It looks like ego, ami. This is, this is the same way the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible translates God telling Moses, I am that I am. I am. This is the great I am. Jesus is, they say, we're looking for, you know, Jesus asked them, who are you looking for? And Jesus says, I am. You know, like, it's like, I imagine just like sonic waves. This is the great I am who created the heavens and the earth. Saying to them, I am. The uh, ESV supplies a footnote there. You can see that it's up there, uh, A. And you're, if you have an English standard version of the Bible, it will have probably something, a different type of, a different number, or a different letter, but you'll have the same footnote. And it shows you that the Greek says, I am. So if you're looking for this, you can see it. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Judas has switched sides. And when Jesus said to them, Ego, Ami, I am, what happens? Well, what happens to them is what happens to everybody else when they have a face to face encounter with God. They drew back and fell to the ground. But they're soldiers. They get back up. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answered them. And he answered, I told you that I am. Here it is again. I'll just show you one more time. Ego, Amy. That'll be important later on. Now, why is Jesus doing this? Why is he making them repeat Jesus of Nazareth? I think because Jesus wants his followers to live through the night. I think he wants it clear in their minds that they're just there for him, not his boys. So if you seek me, let these men go. I think Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. That's John 10, 11. And so he's making them repeat Jesus of Nazareth. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me I have not lost or I have lost not one John 17:12 that's a passage that Brendan spoke on a couple weeks ago Then Simon Peter having a gun drew it Question There's a bunch of Roman soldiers It's nighttime they've come to make a nighttime arrest like kind of like a SWAT team. How many swords do the disciples have? How many guns do the disciples have? Two, one, depending on, you know. At one point they say, we've got two swords. Is that enough? Should you draw your sword when there's a bunch of Roman soldiers there ready, for a, ready to do it? Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. 
and struck the high priest's servant and cut off. He didn't just draw it. He starts swinging it. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your gun in its sheath. Put it away, Peter. I want you to live through the night, Peter. I have plans for you beyond tonight, Peter. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officials of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. High priest should be the most godly man in the city. He stands between the people and God and is like the head officiant of the sacrifices for their sins. They bring him to Annas, though, because Annas had been the high priest previously. Annas has five sons, including Caiaphas, who is his son-in-law, who are high priests. He is like the godfather of the priesthood. It has become a corrupt, power-broking system. So first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient for one man, that one man should die for the people. So this is when Lazarus is raised from the dead, and the people are like, whoa, maybe Jesus really is the Messiah. And the high priest get, you know, and the religious establishment get really nervous about this because they're afraid the people might rebel and the Romans will come in and crush them and take away their place. So they're like, well, you know, what we should do is we should really kill this guy. So that the Romans don't come in here and take our place. And it would save a lot of lives if we just killed this one guy. And so they determined. After this, they decide they're going to do everything they can do to put him to death. And this is who Jesus goes to for his initial trial. Simon Peter followed Jesus. I mean, you have to give it to Simon, okay? Because we're, we're going to come back to this in a little bit when Simon starts denying Jesus. You have to give it to him. I mean, he says in John 13, I want to say it's 34 or 33, he says, Lord, I am willing to lay down my life for you. And I mean, he, he tries. He draws his sword and starts swinging in the presence of a whole bunch of soldiers. And so he follows Jesus. And so did another disciple. Hey, did you know that there was another disciple that follows Jesus into it? Who is that other disciple? Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple since that disciple was known to the high priest. Oh, so it's a disciple that is buddies with the high priest. The high priest is like a really big mucky muck. You know, like, like they had their own section where they lived in the city. Like, this is a really high official. I heard some people say, well, it's probably John. And it, and it might have been John. But remember, John comes from the north, up by the Sea of Galilee. The high priest lived in the south. John comes from a family of fishermen. Not exactly really high bigwigs. 
Was it John? Or was it somebody like Nicodemus? Or somebody like Joseph of Arimathea? Since that high priest, I'm saying, since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So this disciple walks up, waves at the guards, they let him through because they know who he is. Peter's stuck outside. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, is this John? Is it Joseph of Arimathea? Is it Nicodemus? So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke with a servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. He's good. Let him in. Okay. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, Hey, hey, you also are not one of this man's disciples. Are you? Remember what Peter says? He said, I am not. You want to see what the Greek looks like there? Here's what the Greek looks like. Uk, ami. What, what was, when, when Jesus said, I am, what was that? Ego, ami. What does Peter say? Uk, ami. Not, not I, not me, not I am complete opposite of Jesus. You see Jesus succeeding and you see Peter failing. Falling on his face. Road rash on your face. Failure. Why? Well, maybe because he gave way to fear. Just plain failure. And maybe, maybe it's because he gave way to fear and just lost his courage. So Peter says, I am not, or not I. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire. There's going to be another charcoal fire. Not in this passage, but in a couple weeks. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. And the chief, and, sorry, and the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. But Jesus is not going to say anything about his disciples because he really wants them to live through the night. And Jesus answered him and said, I have spoken openly to the world. And he's including them in the world. I have always taught in the synagogues, in the temple, where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Which, in other words, you know, because he has explained things to his disciples in secret. But he's saying, what I said in public is not different than what I said in private. He just gave more details or explained more when he was in private with his disciples. So why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And he said these, and when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? You know, the, the violence has begun. And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. 
But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. Notice we're going back and forth between Jesus, or between Jesus and Peter. Between Peter and Jesus. See how, so note the contrast. You're supposed to see the contrast here. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples. Are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. You want to see what the Greek looks like for that? It's ouk eimi. Instead of ego eimi, I am, Peter says, not me, not I am. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? So, I mean, he's Malchus's, I don't know, cousin, brother, uncle, I don't know. He's related to Malchus. He's like, I think I've seen you before, and I think you're the one that drew the sword and got to live. I think that was you. Pretty sure it was you. And Peter denied it again. John can't bring himself to write, Uk Ami again. But he denies it again. And at once, a rooster crowed, just like Jesus said it would. Okay, so, what can we say about this? As you, as you look at how Jesus is utterly in control of this, and as you look at Peter's utter failure, what can we say about this? Well, here's, here's where I would start. Here's what I think we have to say about the whole passage. What we have to say about the whole passage is that what is inescapable is that Jesus, on purpose, not by mistake, laid down his life for us. So Jesus is the great I Am who created the heavens and the earth, and like we sang earlier, he is God and he died for us. He is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. He is the great high priest that these earthly high priests point up at and are kind of a, almost a mockery of. He is the great high priest who sacrifices for our sins. And what does he sacrifice for, him, for our, our sins? He sacrifices himself for our sins. So that when we meet Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist points at him and shouts, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what you have to say about this. What you cannot escape is that Jesus laid down his life on purpose. 
when Jesus, knowing everything that would happen to him, came forward. Now, why did Jesus lay down his life? Well, he did this according to the Father's plan. You have to say this all went according to his plan. So when Peter starts swinging his sword, remember that he says, Shall I not drink the cup that my Father has for me? Like this is all going according to plan. And I think that's important for you and me when we feel like life is really spiraling out of control and life seems to get more and more and more out of control. Whether it's at home, whether it's what we're seeing on the news, whether it's at work, whether, you know, I don't know if we're afraid that gas will be $8 a gallon by June. Like life seems like it's getting really out of control. We just got to remember the Father has a good plan. And he is working out that good plan. We don't know what it is. We don't know why it is. But we trust the Father has a plan. And it really, you see this here because it goes all the way back. I think this is why John calls it the garden rather than the garden of Gethsemane. Because I think this garden in John chapter 18 is the answer to the first garden in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. So in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, God creates a good heavens and a good earth and he puts the man and the woman in the garden and he says, There's just, just don't eat. Of one tree. And of course, the one thing they can't have is the one thing they have to have. And so they go and they take the one thing that they can't have, the one thing that they shouldn't have, that's the thing, that's the only thing that will make them happy, they decide. And so they go after this tree and they get it and that produces incredible amounts of guilt and shame. And, and the wages of that decision are death. But an outworking of that is that they feel all this shame. And so God, after he pronounces the curse on them, like these are the implications of what you did, he kills animals and provides for them clothes. And this is the fulfillment of that. Because he will send his own son to be the savior of the world and provide for us clothing of righteousness. To cover our guilt, cover our shame. Jesus laid down his life according to the Father's plan. Okay, so what did he do? He laid down his life on purpose. Why did he do it? Well, according to the Father's plan. Now, why did that happen? Well, that happened to give us life. He did that to give us life. Now, think of how life-giving this is. Let's talk about Peter for a second. Maybe you can relate to Peter. Peter had a failure of courage. Peter gave way to fear. 
Isn't it life-giving to know that when Peter gave way to fear, Jesus looked at him as one of his lost sheep and said, I am going to go and find you. By the end of the book, Jesus has gone out and found Peter and restored him to himself. Isn't that life-giving? Peter at least gives way to fear. Peter also, he denies Jesus. And you know, as I was reading this again, I was thinking, you know, maybe, maybe fear wasn't the only factor at play for Peter. Because Peter really thought Jesus was going to bring about a different kind of kingdom. Peter really thought that Jesus was going to go a different direction this Passover. A different kingdom was going, to come, was going to come this Passover. And so maybe when they're asking him, are you one of his disciples? Maybe Peter is like, you know what? No, I'm not. Because this is not how I thought life was going to go. This is not what I thought Jesus was going to do. Maybe there was just an element of anger. And denying Jesus out of this is not how I thought it would go. I'm mad. Because he demonstrated that he could be brave when he's swinging the sword. And you know what? What does Jesus do with people that deny him in anger? When they're ready to repent, he forgives. Isn't that life giving? He forgives. Peter forgot who he was. He denied who he was. Denies his identity as a disciple and Jesus forgives. It's life-giving. Peter lies about who he is. He lies about his relationship with Jesus. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? He's lying about it. He's failing to tell the truth and he's lying about it. And what does Jesus say a couple chapters earlier? I I just want to read it to you. John chapter 13. You can turn there with me if you want, but I'm happy just to read it to you. John chapter 13. And Jesus has told them he's going to go away. Verse 36. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. Got to live through the night, Peter. Now watch this. But you will follow afterward. You know what? Jesus knew that Peter wasn't brave enough, that Peter wasn't committed enough, that Peter wasn't strong enough. Jesus knew that Peter would fail. This is what he says at the end of chapter 13, the very last verse, the very last line of chapter 13, verse 38. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Like Jesus knows Jesus knows what Peter's going to do and how he's going to face plant. He knows how he's going to fail. Maybe because of fear, maybe because of anger, maybe because he's just lying and hiding. And Jesus still has a future picked out for Peter. And it's a good future. And he plans to use Peter mightily. That's life-giving. Isn't it? That this is who Jesus is. 
Because as he gives his life for us, he's covering our wrongdoing that produces shame with his righteousness. As he gives his life for us, he's paying our sin debt. Like when we sin against someone, we feel like we owe them something. When we sin against God, we feel like we owe this cosmic debt. He's paying the debt that we cannot pay. When we sin, we know we should be punished. That's why we hide. That's why we lie. And Jesus took the punishment that we could never... He was punished for our sins in our place. Jesus laid down his life according to the Father's plan to give us life. So what should we do? We should receive life again. And we should know that Jesus, this same Jesus, comes to find us like lost sheep. This same Jesus offers us forgiveness of sins again and again and again. This same Jesus has a good future picked out for us where we will become more and more conformed to his image and likeness through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's this Jesus. This is what I think we need to remember as we receive communion. That this is how we remember his life-giving sacrifice for our sins. This, this is life-giving as we remember how he found us, how he forgives us, and how he's conforming us to the likeness of Jesus. This is why we're going to receive communion every week between now and Easter. Because we need this life as we remember his sacrifice for our sins. Receive this life. And if, and if you're here and you're like, you, you just haven't decided yet. Because I think in a room this size, there's got to be some that haven't decided. Let me just try to make eye contact with everybody. And I just want to tell you, Jesus is not one more life-sucking person. Jesus came to give life and give it to the full. Jesus came so that you could have eternal life. And that's what this means. I mean, this is, this is just juice and a cracker. But it means me for you. Jesus for you. I am dying in your place so that you can live. My body is being sacrificed so that one day your body can be raised and redeemed. My blood is being shed so that your sins can be forgiven. Me for you, life-giving. That's what this means. And the offer is, receive this life. 
Receive it. Receive all of it. And then give them all of yours. So some of us need to remember that this is life giving. So we need to come back and receive this life again. Some of us need to receive life for the first time. And then the challenge for us is to then be life giving people. So Jesus gave them a command in John chapter 13. He gave them a new command. He said, here's my new command. Love one another. Okay, well that's an old command. That's back in Leviticus. But it's new because it's intensified. Love one another as I have loved you. So you are to love one another. That's life-giving. But here's my deep, deep conviction. You can't be a life-giving person. You can't love like that. You can't. Unless you go and receive his love first. We love. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. So go to his well and drink deep and then you'll be able to love them. You want to be a life-giving person? Learn to receive life from him. This is the purpose of the book. John chapter 20 says this. John chapter 20, verse 30. John chapter 20, verse 30. This is, like I say, the purpose statement of the book. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Lots of stuff that we could talk about, but we didn't. Fascinating when you think about that. Lots of other stuff they could have included. Lots of stuff left out. Bothers me a little bit. But these are written. Here's why this stuff is here. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. May you receive life. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that we would be a life-receiving people so that we can be a life-giving people. May we remember how you love us. May we experience that again as we receive communion. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.